Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This week on the Pete the Planner show, we answer your money questions. You can get a hold of us in a very simple way. Email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com, askpete at petetheplanner.com. And when you do that, something magical happens. You're forced to tune into a radio show or podcast to get your answer. It's very efficient. And joining me to be part of this menagerie is one Damian Dunn, Director of Personal Financial Strategies at Your Money Line, who joins us from Studio North East. Hello, Dame. Man, menagerie? I I didn't know I was going to have to have a thesaurus today. I don't. I'm not into dinosaurs. All right, Dame, this week we've got three different things we're dealing with. Classic lump sum pension question, one of my favorites, but there's a special twist to this one. Uh, Then we're going to welcome one of our colleagues, Gail, to the program. We're going to talk about minimalism. Then finally, we're going to discuss, should you just be your own investment advisor? And what should you consider if that's something you're considering? Do you have thoughts on that? Um, Yes, I do have thoughts on that. Oh, good. Maybe we'll even get to them. All right, Dame. Uh, oh, no salutation. This first email from Craig. Actually, about, let's just go with the traditional good day. Good day. My wife and I have a lump sum pension payment versus annuity question. I don't want an answer based on the fine details or a complicated algorithm. <laughs> good news. I can't give so you. Thank, thank goodness. A, yeah. Just looking for your general sort of philosophical opinion. Now you're talking details. Here, so I'm guessing these are not fine details, Dame. These are just details. Mm. You know, my voice is a little raspier today. Can you notice that? Um, no, I haven't yet, but you can bet I'm going to be paying attention going forward. I sound like Lindsay Lohan on oh. a bender. Well, that's uh, not a great image. Assume 401ks, IRAs, HSA, and a brokerage account equaling about $3 million. Wow. The lump sum or pension is in addition to this amount and equals $1 million from a private corporation or an equivalent monthly sum with no COLA retiring at 55. One person will claim Social Security and the other spousal benefit. Debts will not be a major issue. House paid off. Final sentence, I think, is where it's at, Dame. I would like to leave an estate. Mm -hmm. Is there an easy answer to this question? Thanks. Uh, Craig or Greg or you know what here's the thing every time I meet a Craig or a Greg same name to me wow that's not great it isn't it's but I'm being honest well yeah I mean I guess that's comforting to somebody maybe what do you think so I think you're right I think the last um sentence really says a lot here. However, there, man, there are so many questions that I would love to have answers to before I started saying, well, I think this is probably the right answer for you. Generally speaking, if someone's goal is to leave an estate, and I think this is as good a time as any to refresh the audience, not really my own personal goal to leave an estate, uh, but not that anyone cares, but I just thought I'd pepper that in in case my kids were listening. <laughs> uh, so anytime someone says they want to leave an estate, the idea of an annuity or a pension, in my opinion, goes completely out the window because at the event of death or death of the spouse, then all funds are paid and there is no estate. Correct. I, you know, that's they're, they are 
giving up the rights to a nice pool of cash for stability in income going forward with uh, the annuity option. You know, sometimes when someone says, I would like to leave an estate, I, I immediately think, how can we maximize the estate? But sometimes that may not be what they mean. Maybe this person just means, ah, they can have what's left over. Or do you think this person means, I want to set those fools up for generations? That's actually one of the questions that I would love to have the answer to is, okay, you want to leave an estate? That's fine. That that means, as you just said, a number of things to different people. Is it you want to make as much money as you can and leave as much as you can as you want? Or do you want to leave uh, your you know, designated beneficiaries or, or whomever uh, a set amount of money? Because uh, in that case, you know, maybe just maybe what you've already got accumulated could take care of that. And a stream of income plus the social security benefits would, would take care of a majority of your living expenses in retirement. We, we just don't know the answer here. I also think it's a possibility to have your cake and consume it into your face hole as well. Is that the same? Yeah. Very, very similar to that. Yes. Uh, what if they took the pension, you know, took the monthly payment and generally speaking, that monthly payment is going to be higher than what a person can safely generate off of the lump sum itself, and then used some of that increased income to purchase life insurance so that when the person dies, then a big lump sum is created and passed on to the next generation. Thoughts? Yeah, you absolutely could do that. I mean, it, there's a lot of numbers that are going to be involved in seeing if that is a, a wise decision, but you know, the old uh, maximizing social security type approach to to that, um, this or this this particular example could be uh, adapted for it. So it's a possibility, but there would be uh, be some appointments and some discussions and some calculations that would need to be made to make sure that's a fit. Generally speaking, when someone has a lump sum uh, versus pension payment slash annuity question, I generally lean towards taking the pension and not the lump sum. Do, do you have a general leaning? Um, typically, I'm the same. I, I value the stability that a, uh, an annuity or a pension will provide for most people in retirement, uh, especially if you compare that with a reasonable social security benefit. Um, that's going to make life a lot easier for most people, especially if they have um, maybe some some meager uh, retirement savings that they've been able to accumulate on their own, uh, use that for emergency type things, uh, backup funds, if you will. So I like to lean towards the pension, but in some cases, man, it, it, it just doesn't make the most sense. There's another factor here that's really got me bothered in this email. He says, and equals $1 million from a private corporation or an equivalent monthly sum with no COLA. Equivalent monthly sum with no COLA, that's a really subjective phrase because, Dame, from what I know, which I sort of just alluded to, the monthly pension amount off of a lump sum is generally a higher distribution rate than when you get off of a, you know, a, a regular asset. You know, if it was just a million dollars in a brokerage account, you're not going to pay yourself the equivalent of what that monthly sum is. You'd pay yourself less to uh, create longevity, right? Yeah. And that was uh, something else that I had kicked around when you sent me this question earlier was, uh, okay, what kind of rates are we talking about? Uh, what would you take out of uh, the account to live off of if, if you chose the lump sum? 
versus what's the annuity going to pay you? What's what's that rate going to be? And and maybe maybe the annuity makes sense in that uh, in that vein as well. So again, this is um, there's a lot of great questions that could be asked here to really help dial in the answer for Greg here. This may not surprise you, my friend, but I believe I may have just switched teams. Well. You know, I, you know, it seems to be a theme, recurring theme with us in the last few weeks. I, I feel like if Craig or Craig or whatever, if he's healthy and can get life insurance, if he were to take the monthly payout, it would pay him a higher equivalent amount than what he could generate off that million bucks, which means two things. He could use that higher amount to buy life insurance. And because he has a higher amount, he would have to tap less of that other $3 million nest egg. So I think, especially if his goal is to leave an estate and he's healthy, that might be a better move. Greg, depending on how long uh, um, you think you might need the money and how much you want to spend in retirement and how much you want to leave, you're going to come up with your answer, I think. I feel like this is a really good way to start the show. What do you think? I I can't think. All right, we're going to come back another segment of you and me, and then I think we'll do Gail. That's probably a good idea. Uh, and you're kicked off the show when she's here because I just, I want to focus on her and not you. I agree. I understand. Okay. Uh, coming up out of the break, if you want to invest your money by yourself with no investment advisor, what do you need to know? All that is next on the Pete, the planner show. I'm Pete, the planner. on the Pete the Planner show, answering your money questions. Dave, do you have any questions today or am I handling all the questions? No, I think you're handling all the questions today. I thought your question was going to be like, how did I get involved with this? No, I just, that's what I ask myself inside my head. Dear Pete, having read your columns, you seem to always mention the importance of having an investment advisor. Can I assume you're against people investing on their own? I'm on the fence as to whether I should keep managing my own investments or hire someone to help me. I'm struggling to justify the cost of paying someone to do something I can happily do myself. Brandon. Hmm. Take a swing, buddy. Take a swing. Brandon, the challenge comes not when times are good, but when times are bad. And if you have the um, discipline and the foresight to stick with a well-detailed investment plan uh, so that you know exactly what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish with each, with, with each of the investments that you've chosen, then you might have a shot at being able to do it on your own in the long term. But if you're gauging your abilities to uh, manage your portfolio only based on the last eight years or so, um, I would encourage you to make sure that you aren't um, over-inflating your abilities uh, for all weathers of market. It was kind of hard not to make money in the last, uh, what do we call it, nine years, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen um, markets similar to this before. I mean, the, the tech, the run-up to the tech bubble. I mean, I, I remember, you know, riding around in golf carts with guys my age. We were still in, uh, still in college and... Uh, yeah, just Why talking. were you riding around in golf carts with men? I was playing golf. Oh, okay. I didn't think you mentioned that. 
I didn't, but you know, I figured if you said you were riding around in golf carts, one would naturally assume that you might have been playing golf. But I'm I'm sorry I made that jump in logic. Wow. Um, well, <laughs> um <laughs> but it, it, you didn't have to have any real um knowledge or discipline to make money those days. You just, you know, threw some cash at Microsoft or Sun Microsystems or Cisco or whoever, and and you watched your investment rise. And it was, those were exciting days, but you found out real quick, not too long after that, that, you know, there are all sorts of ramifications that come with investing in the market. And day traders found out really, really quick that uh, it's, it's not a game to be trifled with. You can, you can do some serious damage to your long-term perspective if, uh, if it's not handled appropriately. I think there are four major mistakes, primary mistakes that amateur do-it-yourself investors experience. I think the first one is a complete lack of diversification or not even a complete lack, just uh, poor diversification. And it, and it goes like this, uh, Dame, if I like my pastrami sandwich with a little bit of spicy brown mustard and it makes me happy and it's delicious, if I add tons of spicy brown mustard, I actually will eventually ruin the sandwich. And what ends up happening is people take a particular ingredient they like in food and or investing and they load up on it. And there's unintended consequences when you get out of balance with adding too much of one investment to a portfolio. I even look at my fun money portfolio. It's wildly out of balance because there's a spicy brown mustard in there that I love. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, if you're overweight in certain areas, well, that's okay every once in a while if you're paying attention to what you're doing, but it's no way to maintain your, your normal portfolio on a long-term basis. To, to manage a portfolio like that takes way more effort and attention than most people are willing to give it. Because people will hear a good idea, maybe do some research, maybe have a system for even day trading. But that doesn't mean that the portfolio is diversified mm. by any means. No. And so that is the number one mistake I see. Even with people just who, who put themselves in charge of their retirement plan at work. I mean, you've seen a million 401k statements. The average person is criminally undiversified. Absolutely. Um, and that's why I think uh, target date funds uh, can play a, a nice role for some people. Are they the the be all end all for investment options? No, but if if you're not sure what you're doing, um, a target date retirement fund inside of your four, your employer provided 401k, um, that can help you make sure that you're diversified very, very well. I would also like to mention, since you just brought up target date funds and we're talking diversification, a poor idea is to diversify your target date funds by having like a 2030 fund, a little bit of the 2035, a little bit of the 2050, a little bit of the 2055. Don't do that. Just choose the year of which you uh, you plan to retire. And then your all of your money should go there. Because if you do it the other way and you try to not put all your eggs in one basket by having six target date funds, uh, you are creating an unbalanced portfolio that is inappropriate for you. Yeah. Um, target aid funds by their very nature are diversified little critters. And so you don't need multiple target date funds to ensure you are being diversified. So, uh, don't worry, uh, pick one, go with it. And you're going to have literally 
hundreds if not thousands of of stocks in there and a ton of bonds from all over the spectrum in there as well so um one target date fund is all you need mistake number two is attempting to time the market you know it took me i don't know years three four years as a young investment advisor back in the early 2000s to learn all the different ways that I was naturally predisposed to try to time the market mm-hmm. and then talk myself out of it and to, to remain disciplined. I think average investors still get caught up in timing. They might find the right time to sell, but they almost never buy back in at the appropriate time because it's nearly impossible. Because by the time you think things have turned around, oh, they have, and you've missed most of the growth which was before your buy back in. So number two is attempts at timing. Dame, number three is emotional investing. I think this one is is really hard to quantify, but I think the best part about a financial advisor, an investment advisor is they are a barrier between your money and your emotions. And that's really hard doing it yourself. Yeah, uh, advisors will keep you from, like I said, doing something that is going to potentially harm you in the long term and emotions and investing, man, they... Uh, they almost go to war with each other. So an advisor, a nice a buffer in between you and making a potentially really bad decision is a, a welcome addition to your investment strategy. There's a classic uh, behavior or really it's an emotion and investing chart. It looks like a roller coaster. And with that, you can find it. I'm not, Google it. Jeez. Uh, emotions and investing there's this chart looks like a roller coaster and what you find in that chart is when you feel best about your portfolio is when you're the most susceptible to loss and when you feel the worst about your portfolio the the worst you can about it is where all the opportunity is but you're so despondent by your losses it's hard to take action a good investment advisor will make sure that you're able to to make the appropriate decisions dame the final mistake you already alluded to it and it's just relying on superficial investment knowledge. Like you can read every investment book, investment book there is. You can, you know, have charts and all these things. But the idea that you've run one financial life in your lifetime, whereas a financial advisor will have run hundreds, if not thousands, puts you at a sincere and severe disadvantage. So I think people just get really nearsighted when it comes to running their own finances because of that factor. Yeah. Consistency is king in your financial life. And, you know, if you look at professional athletes who know what they are doing better than just about anybody else on the planet, they still hire coaches. So you could be the best investor in the world and it still wouldn't hurt to have somebody looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing what you should be doing. You know, I think a lot of times people think the best case scenario, if they do it on their own, is that they're going to beat an investment advisor's portfolio. I disagree with that. I think best case scenario realistically is that you match the investment advisor's portfolio. And then all you've really done is just save on their fee. For some people, that's enough. Uh, but for most people who don't know what they're doing, who aren't going to tie the advisor, they're better off just getting a professional to help them. Dame, coming about for the break, minimalism and Gail. Next on the Pete the Planner Show. Back on the Pete the Planner show, talking minimalism every once in a while on this show. We visit a topic. We don't answer questions. We, we answer enough of your questions. Sometimes we get to talk about what we want to talk about. And today we want to talk about minimalism. It is a journey. It is a way. It is a lifestyle. 
and to help me understand it better, I'm bringing a member of my team, actually our good friend Damien's team, the financial concierge team at Your Money Line, Gail Ivasich. She joins us now. Hello, Gail. Hey, Pete. How are you? Good. Is this your radio debut? Have you been on the radio before? Uh, well, in former positions I have, but this is my first time with you. Yes. Okay. So this is a career low light for you because I am not good at this. So now by association, this is going well for you. All right. So Gail, you subscribe to, to certain aspects of minimalism, right? I do. Yeah. I am. Um, it's been a long time journey and I would say I am a work in progress minimalist. I think that's a great place to start for anyone who finds what we're talking about interesting today is that you don't have to go all in. You, you can you can take steps and, and see how you feel about it. What do you think is a reasonable step? Well, first of all, I guess we should back up. What is minimalism? I, what is it? it it's, a, it's a buzzword, but what does it mean? Um, well, to me, and, and I've done some reading too, it's really just a matter of clearing stuff out of your life that isn't needed and that prevents you from really focusing on the things that actually do matter in life. Um, we spend so much time thinking that stuff is going to make us happy and it doesn't. So minimalism is just a way of kind of removing all the clutter so you can really get to, to what it is that's going to bring you happiness and joy. Uh, because my brain works this way, I have to try to quantify it. So for me, I think of it this way. If I had five shirts to my name, I would like those five shirts a lot. But the second I get a sixth shirt and a seven shirt, the average amount that I like each shirt decreases because of marginal utility. So you end up valuing things that you would otherwise value the more you have of it. And, and yet you keep trying to acquire more of it to get that feeling of satisfaction again. And so for me, when I look in my closet or my garage or my junk drawer that I wish we didn't have, I see things that actually anger me and not bring me value. Where, where did you start your journey, Gail? Um, well, actually, there are two big vents in my life. Uh, one was a, a work job I was making. It was a typical minimalist story, unfortunately, making lots of money, traveling. I was gone three weeks a month. I had three small children, and I don't think that I had ever been more sad or miserable in my entire life. Uh, miserable is kind of an understatement. And so plenty of money to buy my kids things and to buy things, but I just wasn't happy. And then the second event was um, going through a divorce. These I don't mean to be sad stories. Man, I'm but... laying on a couch. My... <laughs> is the therapist supposed to lay on the couch? How does this work? No, but it was, it was actually really good because through the process of moving and transitioning, uh, we acquired a moving box and storage bin PTSD. It's just, we yeah. just moved boxes and boxes. And so now we refuse to have boxes. You know, it's, it's fair and important for that matter for a person to consistently ask themselves, what's important to me? And if you look at your resources that come in on a regular basis, also called your income, what's important to you should inform those resources. And I'm guessing, Gail, if you're like me, the stuff you don't use is not important to you. That's exactly right. Right. And, and I kind of stick to a six month rule. If I don't use something in six months, it's gone. And, and that was there, a, was there a breakthrough moment for you uh, when it comes to, you know, you're trying this out there. Obviously, you had a few moments that uh, uh, inspired you. But was there a process that you did 
the cleaning out of a garage or a storage unit or or how you buy things, garbage in, garbage out. Was there one thing that really made the difference for you? Yes. Not having to have shelves in my garage with storage bins. When I could actually use my garage for vehicles and kayaks and, you know, the stuff we actually like to do rather than storing old stuff, it was it was like a light bulb moment that this is the way it should be. And so not only do we have a six month rule, but everything has its place. So it's not about organizing, but it's we use it and it goes where it goes. And life is so much easier this way. Was there one item that you were reluctant to get rid of? And you were like, oh, I can't possibly get rid of this. And then you took the leap of faith, you got rid of it. And then you immediately said to yourself, okay, yeah, I should have just gotten rid of that without any hesitation. Oh, there are so many of those, Pete. Uh, so many. Uh, most of them are sentimental. Um, things from my parents or my childhood that I would just lug along wherever I go because it meant something to me. And then I realized that those those memories of my family or, or my childhood or whatever, they're, they're still in my head and my heart. I didn't need those items to bring me back those memories. Plus the items were packed in a box in my garage. It's not, yeah. So it's not like you ever look at them or it's, it's a Saturday or like, I'm going to open my memories. No one ever really does that <laughs> That's right. except when they go to throw it out, you know? Exactly. And so that was, that was a big moment for me. I think another thing about minimalism that I can attach myself to is this isn't about frugality and, and it's not about buying the cheapest stuff and making it work. In fact, it's the opposite. It's about buying high quality very well-made thing. I, I said thing instead of things because that's the point. You buy one of the thing, not many of them. What is there an item in your life that represents your ability to buy quality and not quantity? Where, where did you splurge because you could in this regard? Um, where did I splurge? That's a great question, actually. I would say um, I splurge on um, cooking uh, pots and pans. I have really nice pots and pans because we cook a lot. We love to cook. And so that was one thing that was important to me. So instead of having, you know, a cabinet full of pots and pans and skillets, I have two saucepans and one big pan and two, two skillets, but they're super high quality. Yeah. What's the point of having 10 skillets and four burners, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can only now, cook I so much. If people are going to get started uh, and, and take a look at their things and, and ask the question, some semblance of, does this thing, does this object bring value to me? You know, well, what's the best thing to do? Start with a room and, and separate things into piles. Is that the way to go? I think that's one way. I, I think there might be multiple ways, depending on your personal, you know, your personality. Um, I, I listened to podcasts with Joshua Becker, Becker and taking one room. There's Marie Kondo who says, take a room and put everything in the middle of it. Um, for me, it's, I need to start small so I can build my confidence and my ability to actually do this. And sort of like the momentum method and sure. start with a drawer, start with a cabinet. And then what I also do is I make a list of the things I want to tackle. And if I have 20 spare minutes, well, I can, I can knock out a cabinet in 20 minutes. I can knock out a closet. So I just kind of keep a running list of what I want to do and then do it in manageable bites because I don't think there's much worse than going to bed at night with a project half done. 
I feel you there. So is there on your journey? And again, I'm at the beginning of my minimalism journey and I, I freely admit that. Is there is there a next step for you that if you do that, you know you're further along or, or is it is it smaller steps at this point for you? Um, I think if I could get my tools, so I'm, I'm a tool person. I like tools. <laughs> I like to collect them. If I could get my tools in order where I only have one screwdriver of each size, <laughs> not five, and kind of get my tools in order, I think I will have succeeded in becoming a minimalist. You know, it occurred to me during this discussion that you are a much more interesting person than I am because one, <laughs> you actively use a kayak. I mean, so that alone puts you above most people. No. And number two, you have a stance on tools. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I know. That's amazing. I am, am a tool. So, all right, Gail, <laughs> thank you so much uh, for being on the show today. We will have you have you back, of course, and hopefully surplant Damien. Uh, in his role on this show. Is that your hope that you would get rid of him too? That's not possible. Nope. (laughs) You guys are keep up the good. No, thanks. We call Gail just so you know, everybody gold star Gail, because everyone loves her and gives her a gold star. So Gail, thanks again. Coming up after the break, uh, more of the Pete, the planner show. I'm Pete, the planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show is every week, Dame, we have something called the Boam. The Boam is the biggest waste of money of the week. It is something frivolous and silly, and it's a waste of money. And I have a real life example for you today. I can't wait to hear it. And and this will end in you and everyone listening making fun of me. Is it something that you're going to say is a huge waste of money and you've already bought it? Yes, until I figured out recently that by not paying that amount and doing something myself, I saved the money and it was comically easy. Oh man, this is this is going to be fantastic. Please do tell. Go on. This is right in this is right in the wheelhouse of what you love to make fun of me for. So just so you know, this is perfect for you. I'm waiting. So let me rewind a few years ago. Maybe this year. I don't know. I'm bad with time. And we were about to go on a large family vacation. Uh, And by large, I mean seven days. And we were going to drive. And Dame, a day and a half before we leave for the trip, I have major battery issues in my car. Car battery, wouldn't start, jumped it. The next day wouldn't start, you know, and I'm thinking, I I can't risk this. This is the car we're driving. I'm going to, I need to take in and we're, we're getting new tires anyway. So I went in and I told the guy, he's like, just replace it. And I was like, okay. So he, I got a new car battery. And, and they did, he's like, do you want to do it or you want us to do it for you? And I was like, you do it. I don't want to die. Because I was thinking, car battery, that's what they shock people up when they interrogate them, as I've seen in a lot of movies. Right, yeah. So like, that's dangerous. I, I, don't, I don't want any part of that. So I paid whatever I paid. I don't even remember. And I've done that several times. I've bought several car batteries in my life and never changed one of them. Fast forward to this week, Dame. There's a third car we have still hanging around that we just, I I was getting around to selling and I sold it. And then I went to start it up. So when the person came by to get it uh, this week, they'd have it. Car didn't start. Battery's completely dead because it's been sitting a while. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh man, 
don't want to deal with this. So I just Google like change a car battery. And Dame, it says this is one of the easiest things a person can possibly do as it relates to their car, short of going through an automatic car wash. Yeah. And I was like, that can't be. So I went and bought a car battery. I came home. I changed it in like four minutes. Mm -hmm. Damien, do you know how many car batteries I've paid to have changed over the last 25 years of driving? Uh, let's see, five, you know, half a dozen Different or so. Car, yeah. I mean, several to the tune of probably, I don't know, hundreds, maybe a thousand dollars. Wow. And it's the easiest thing I've ever done on my car. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you knew this, didn't you? The how, how to change a car battery? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I came into work the day after that and I go to some of our coworkers. I said, guys, I, I was pretty manly this weekend, changed the car battery. And, and one of our female coworkers, who you know who it was, she said, oh, two nuts? <laughs> I was like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, there's two nuts and bolts. And I was like, oh, oh that's what you meant. Um, yeah, Dame. So that's the biggest waste of money of the week, paying someone to change your car battery because it is the easiest thing you can possibly do. Mm. Do you ever question my intelligence? Not publicly. <laughs> That's a good answer. Walmart rolls out grocery delivery subscription. Walmart is rolling out a grocery delivery subscription service this fall as it races to gain an advantage in the competitive fresh food business. The service will charge an annual membership fee of $98 for subscribers to access unlimited same-day delivery which will be offered in 1,400 stores and 200 markets. By year-end, it will extend to a total of 1,600 stores or more than 50% of this great country. You know, Dame, we've never gotten grocery delivery from a local grocery store. Do you guys do that up there? Um, You're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I am. I, I don't think they do delivery. I mean, they do have curbside pickup, but we, I don't think we've gotten to the delivery point yet. People swear by the curbside pickup. I know. Here, you want to hear a story? Uh, does it involve humiliation? Uh, I don't want to go that far. I was at a soccer game this weekend, sitting by another soccer parent, and uh, they had uh, arranged one of these curbside pickups. You know, you order online, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So during the soccer game, this person got four phone calls from the grocery store of things they were out of. Oh, and so then what happens, then it became this debate of, all right, well, we're going to replace it with this item, but this item is more expensive. And then the soccer parent was like, no, you're not going to charge me more because you don't have what I need. Just match the price. Then it became this whole thing. And, and I'm listening to it and, and no one's fault, right? It's just a thing. This person could be listening to the show right now. So let's just take it easy. Um, I don't need all that, Dame. I don't need all that in my life. I'm just going to go to the grocery store and get away from my kids for a few minutes. No, it seems like there would be a, you know, a radio button you could check or something that says if you don't have it, replace it with the equivalent, you know, closest priced equivalent, whatever it is. But that seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of hassle, honestly. I like going to the grocery store. Uh, and by the way, I don't want people picking on my produce and my meat. I want to yeah. look at the, the meat before I eat it. Yeah, I, I think there's some... A lot of faith, a lot of trust you're putting in uh, some uh, 
junior high school stock boy to pick out the uh, the stuff that you want to feed your family. Dame, I noticed the next uh, current event you sent me this morning seems like it may have a little extra juice to it. Nearly a quarter of remote workers earn over $100,000 a year compared to 7% of office workers. That's a tidy little story. Yeah, More I, people who work from home make over 100 and uh, 7% of people who work in an office uh, make 100 I mean, I, I just found it interesting. That's all. <laughs> you know what? Like Sometimes I, when you hear these studies, you, you want to just sort of give it the sniff test of like, do you buy that? Okay, so let, let's go through this. Do you think, and you've never seen this study, that 25% of people who just primarily work from home, work remotely as the kids call it, like you do, would you say 25% of those people make over $100,000 a year at first glance or no? First glance, no, I wouldn't. But I think the article goes on to look at the uh, professions that are included in this or are most commonly responded to in this survey. And you start to see that, yeah, maybe that's possible. The industries with the highest shares of remote workers include healthcare, 15%. But here's the thing with 15, you know, you get mobile nurses and stuff like that. They're not making 100,000. Some of them are. But I know a lot of like, what do they call them? Mobile nurses, right? I, sure. Technology and internet uh, industry, 10% of that workforce is work from home. So I would argue that in many cases, you could see those folks trickle above 100,000. Sure. Financial services, which mm -hmm. I believe we probably are in at 9%. Education at 8%, which I would also argue that we're in. In manufacturing at 7%. Dame, how does someone who manufactures things for a living work from home? I have no idea. Etsy? I, I, I don't know. Here's the thing. This is from a place called Owl Labs. Like, it's a video conferencing service. Dame, it's one that we actually employ. I know. We love it. It is one of the best tools as an organization we have. However, I don't know about this study. They only they have data from 1,202 U.S. workers, 62% of whom work remotely at any frequency, and 30 do so full-time. I don't feel like that's a big enough cross-section to release this study. No, I mean, it's that is technically a statistically significant number. However, you know, it just seems like it might need some, some more uh, depth on that one. I don't know. Anyway, that's all this week's show. Uh, we're done. We're done this week. Gail did a great job, though. Mm -hmm. And you were on the show. Yeah. Well, you know, I I just show up. All right, Dame. Well, I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in my budget. And I'm extending that exact same offer to our audience. They can email us for next week. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. That's ask Pete, PeteThePlanner.com. If you want to start the email by saying good day, feel free to. And I'll love it and I'll read it and we'll answer it on the air. Have a great week, everybody. This is the Pete The Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Mm -hmm.